0: Daniel 2. So I went to Brazil five years ago, six years ago, 2013. I went and visited my brother-in-law who he and his family were missionaries there for about 10 years. And at the time I visited him, they lived on this river called the Edd River. And the Edd River is a tributary of a tributary of a tributary of the Amazon and it's massive. Like it's, it's bigger than any river around here. Just this massive river. And it's like the color of tea during the day. So it's, you can't really see into it, which is always sketchy when you're swimming in it. Because in that river, there are anacondas, crocodiles. There are um, piranhas everywhere. Uh, there's parasites, there's worms, there's you name it. Everything's in that water. So you're always like, huh? And this one night we decided to go out and have a a man's night out. So it's pitch black, the water's already dark. Now it's really dark. And we're out there just kind of in these boats, heading out to this place to go hunt uh, fish or whatever else is in the water. And um, uh, we get out and we're kind of walking through the water. It's like this deep and you, you can't really see anything. And all of a sudden this noise starts coming, like from not very far away. And I'm like, Clyde, what? It makes the hair on your neck stand up. I'm like, what is that noise? He's like, oh, it's the howler monkeys. I'm like, howler monkeys? Great. Do they eat people? <laughs> He's like, oh, they're doing it because they probably saw a jaguar. I'm like, a jaguar? Oh, I do that too when I see jaguars. <laughs> yeah, they're great cars. <laughs> All right, so it's just this, it's this environment like nothing else. That night I actually saw an anaconda. I was out on this little island. I saw this anaconda. Um, I followed Jesus that day and I walked on water to the boat. I'm like, <laughs> I am out of here. All right? And there's just these weird currents. You're in this, it's just the weirdest river. It's like nothing here. It's just wild. It's as wild as wild can be. That's what it is. So um, the next day we're at this swimming hole and this guy named Mike Surratt was with us. And he's this older gentleman. He's in his 60s. We're all a bit younger than that. And he had a heart condition. And for some reason, we're swimming and stuff. He decides to jump in a ways upstream. I didn't even see it happen until it was too late. And he jumped in, uh, in upstream and began to float down. And he got caught in some kind of a current. And it just took him. And like everyone starts yelling. I'm like, what are they yelling about? And I look down and it's way too late for me. He's just going under the water. And I'm like, oh my goodness. He's got this heart condition. He's in this crazy, just insane river. And it looks like he's struggling. He's not going to make it. Well, just providence of God. There was this really stud Brazilian who was down the river quite a while. And he just dove in, swam out, saved him, drug him up on this island and really saved his life. So from that point on, I said to Mike, I said, Mike, if you ever think about doing something, don't. Just make that your rule. Okay. This is don't do it. Well, Life is like that river. It's a wild river. There's wild things out there. There are things that want to get us. And maybe the most powerful thing in life is the current of culture. And if you're not careful, you can get swept out by the current of culture and you'll end up somewhere that you didn't realize you could even get to. Like, how did I get here? How did this happen to my life? How am I drowning in this thing right now? So Daniel is like a manual on how to fight the current of culture. So you've got these young boys that are taken across the world and brand new environment, new religion, new power. They are absolutely powerless. And yet they continue to fight the current of culture. They're brilliant. And it's a manual on how to do that, how to stay following Jesus. Is following Jesus hard? I would say, yes. I would say if following Jesus is not hard, maybe I'm not actually following him. Maybe I'm just going with the current, right? Because following Jesus is hard. So what the church has done throughout history is they have made these ideas. One of them is to cloister away from culture. So we back away, it was the monastic movement in the fourth century when church church was just starting and was blowing up, lots of people were getting saved. And so all these people just said, we have to get away from culture, it's too powerful, let's go be monks somewhere in caves. If you know church history, that's what they did. That's making a massive comeback right now. So a best-selling book from two years ago is called The Benedict Option. And in The Benedict Option, that entire premise is, we have to go back to that. We have to push off from culture because it will make you compromise. And from now on, we just gotta get away from it. So their advice, the guy, the author's advice is this, don't become a lawyer, don't become a doctor, don't become a CEO of a company, don't go into the professional professions because if you do, the current's too strong. You will compromise and you will fail. So instead, become a plumber or become an electrician, or become, go into the trades again. Let's take over the trades. It's really cloistering away, right? It's don't, don't move into the city, go get a thousand acres out in Wolf Creek and live out there with your crew. Does anybody think that's a good idea? <laughs> Let's do it, man. We'd love it for about five minutes. And they'd be like, nah, i want to get to Walmart. So forget this. <laughs> All right, so there's always been this kind of tension And Daniel is phenomenal because you have these four guys. They're working inside the most evil government in the Bible. They don't cloister away. They don't run and hide. They don't get out of it. Instead, they say, we're going to change it from the inside out. We're going to be, have you ever heard of the fifth column? Okay. We're going to be inside and we're going to change this thing from the inside out, which is what the fifth column is. So they're brilliant, beautiful Incredible people. They struggle and they stay faithful. Jesus loves this book. He quotes from it all the time. Like, all the, like some of his most important things are out of the book of Daniel. I think he appears a couple times in Daniel. In Daniel chapter three and in Daniel chapter seven, he appears brilliantly. And sometimes I think we believe the book of Daniel is like kid stories. Because you get Daniel in the lion's den, you get the fiery furnace. So it almost becomes like, uh, a felt board kind of book, but it's not that at all. It's a brilliant book. In fact, I'll give you one intriguing thing about it. Josephus, famous Jewish historian from end of the first century, beginning of the second century. He said the Jews revolted against Rome in 68 AD because of chapter two. Cause they read this and they're like, we will be the rock that smashes Rome. They got the image right. This is Rome, we're smashing Rome, right? It's a dangerous book is what it is. Brilliant. So let's jump into chapter two. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. You'll be made into body parts and your houses will be laid into ruins. There'll be landfills. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation, right? Simple, (laughs) super simple here. Don't do it, body parts, landfill. Do it, gifts and rewards. So come on, do it, like it's easy. He's an Henri dude, Nebuchadnezzar is. They answered a second time and said, "'King, please tell your servants the dream, "'and we will show its interpretation.' The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. This is not in our contract. Look at it. (laughs) The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. We did look at this on Sunday. Um, I said that Nebuchadnezzar has an agenda here. Like, why is Nebuchadnezzar so suspicious of these enchanters and these Chaldeans and these, really the priests of the religion? Why is he so suspicious of them? Why is he so harsh to them? Because if you look throughout history, politics and religion have always fought each other. There's always been a vying for power. Is it gonna be political power or is it gonna be the religion that rules? There's always been that battle. And in the springtime in Babylon, they had a tradition. Every spring, King Nebuchadnezzar would be brought out. He'd be placed on a chair in front of all the masses of the city. And then the priest would come out, the Chaldeans, the wise people, the religious people, they would come out and they would slap Nebuchadnezzar on the face repeatedly until tears flowed. Now, do you think that made Nebuchadnezzar happy? Was he like, thank you, I'll have another one? No, a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, that's gonna stick in his craw. He's gonna remember that, he's gonna hate it. And so now is his opportunity to get them. Oh yeah? Yeah all right. So he has that thing that every spring he's like, yeah, I'm publicly humiliated by this ritual. It's the priest showing, look, we have power too. And the second thing is this. I think that when powerful people get to a certain level, they begin to question everything. So I think at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he's now just questioning like, hey, I'm not sure about our religion. I'm not sure about our system. I don't know if it's true or not. So he's putting these guys to the test. It happens a lot. The guy that built Machu Picchu, he, we know him because he wrote down his story, but he, he, at that time, the Aztecs worshiped the sun. And one day he's out there and he watches and a cloud goes in front of the sun. And he thought, wow, we worship something that can be dimmed by a cloud. And then the cloud left and he took his thumb and he blotted out the thumb, the sun with his thumb. And he said, that's not a God. That's not a God that you could do that to. And he begins to research and to look into what God was actually like. And if you have ever read the book, it's called Eternity in Their Hearts. He talks about it, it's brilliant. What the builder of Machu Picchu says is this, God's not like the God we're worshiping. He's not bloodthirsty and cruel and wanting human sacrifice. He's a God of love who sent his son for us. That was all revealed to him before a missionary ever got there with the Bible. It's a phenomenal story, right? You get to a certain level, I think you begin to question everything. The other guy that's really interesting is the, he's a Pharaoh, his name is Akhenaten. And he's somewhere right after Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. He takes the power. And at that time, um, Egypt was polytheistic. There was the gods of everything. So the 10 plagues come. And if you know that story, each plague is actually directed at a God that the Pharaohs would worship. Each one is saying, they're not God. They're not God. They're not God. I'm God. So Akhenaten comes on the scene and he says, no more polytheism. There's just one God. And he begins, he changes the whole thing from polytheism to monotheism right after Moses. Fascinating. So I think that's Nebuchadnezzar right now. He's kind of mad at them for this ritual, but he's also a skeptic about it all saying, prove it, prove it. And what these priests say at the end is fascinating. They don't believe in revelation. The gods don't do this. The gods don't reveal like that. That's not how it works, right? We throw out the entrails or or we, whatever it is, we mix the tea leaves and that's how it works. The gods don't make revelation. God doesn't speak to man. There's many religious people that say that today, right? That the Bible isn't actually divine. That God's spirit doesn't speak or move. That there's no prophecy in the Bible. It's still the same thing. Religious people say the same thing today. There's no revelation. All right, so that sets the story up. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He's gonna get mad a lot. Nebuchadnezzar had a short fuse and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. How awesome. The Royal assassins show up at Daniel's door. They're knocking at it, swords drawn to put him to death. How brutal is that? Like we live in a land and a time that's so foreign from this kind of stuff. We don't even know this, right? Like we can't even comprehend it. I get a hangnail and I think it's painful. I get a nasty email and I'm like, man, I'm being persecuted, right? The building project takes too long. Oh, ah, it's the end of the world. <laughs> man, these guys, their heads were on the line. And in, in, does, this is coming down on Daniel. And I just love verse 14. It's one of my favorite verses in, in this book. He replied with prudence and discretion. Daniel knew something, and you'll see this over and over in the book. He knew that I can't control my circumstances And I cannot control other people. I can only control my response to other people in those circumstances. That's the only thing I can control. And so I'm going to control that and I'm gonna control it with prudence and with discretion. This is something I tell my kids all the time. You can't control him, you can't control her. All you can control is you. I tell this in marriage counseling, I mean, probably every single time I've done marriage counseling, it's, listen, dude, you can't control your wife. You can't force her to be this way. You can't make her do those things. You can't. All you can control is you and your response to your wife. How are you doing? Same thing I tell, tell the wives. You can't control him. You can't force him. Listen, that's not gonna work. All you can control is you. Are you replying with wisdom and with prudence? I love this. I think when we feel attacked or we feel abused or our political party loses, whatever it is, we should always respond with wisdom and prudence and discretion. This is the way to respond because ultimately we have a hope that cannot be taken. We know the one that sits on the ultimate throne, the king of kings. So why freak out? And he gets this meeting, verse 16. David went in, And requested the king. Why does he get an entrance into the king? Because he responded with wisdom and prudence. If he had gone off half cocked, he would have lost his head. Torn limb from limb. But because of the way he responds, and I'm guessing the way he has been responding, they're like, okay, go in. And he gets in with the king, marches in, and what does he say to him? Give me time, I'll get your interpretation. How bold is that? He's probably 15 years old, most people think. 15-year-old kid marches into the throne room of the most powerful man on earth and says, give me time, I'll get your interpretation. That's radical faith. Do we ever go on record with our faith like that? Give me time, I will get your answer. That's awesome. We need more of that. More people who have radical faith just saying, give me the time, I'll get you the answer. Trusting God will come through. I love John Knox. One of my most famous, his most famous, my favorite, most, his most famous saying is this, give me Scotland or I die. And Queen Mary, if you know history, Bloody Mary she's called because she was killing Protestants for the Catholic faith. Queen Mary said this, she said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than all the armies of Scotland. Why? Because he had faith. And guess what? He got Scotland. Do we ever go on record like that? Give me that drug house. Give me the opioid epidemic in Grants Pass. Let's stop it. Let's have not one single person in Grants Pass addicted to opioids. I mean, do we ever on, why don't we go on record like that? Because we're afraid of failure. That's why. Daniel, somehow, some way. He has worked into the very fabric of his soul. I'm not afraid. And I will go on record, right? When he meets the lion, same thing. Don't worry about me, King. Don't worry about me. It's brilliant, it's awesome. I pray for this kind of faith for myself. Go on record, right? So he says it, and this is what he does, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removed king, removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what, you, what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch to whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went in and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. He goes on record and then he gets after it, right? He doesn't just say, okay, God, I hope you do this. He grabs three buddies and they pray all day into the night, they get after it. They pray like their life depends on it because it actually does. I think when you pray like your life depends on it, things happen. Like brilliant, incredible things happen. And from verse one, this is what we kind of know, second year of, second year of the rain. This is probably year one of his three-year school. So he's still in school, like he's 15. So this is the first recorded school prayer group. And it's massive and impacting. I'll tell you what, you get kids when they're in school, you got them. Man, I got on fire when I was in college and it just stuck with me. There's huge power in prayer groups in college, brilliant. And then he writes this poem, I almost did Sunday on this poem. These seven attributes of God, it's your homework, you can check them out. But at first he's really honest, like, hey, you're the one that set up Nebuchadnezzar, verse 21. And then verse 23, he's super humble. Ah, to you, God, you gave me this, you gave me this, right? So verse 24, he says to Arioch, hey, don't kill all those wise men, I've got the answer. Now this is interesting because at the best these other wise men were competition, right? There's limited seats around the king's table. So if you're going to be one of the king's counselors, all these other wise men, all these other people are competition. At worst, they're his enemies. And in chapter three, in chapter six, we find out they're really his enemies. And Daniel is 100% opposed to their worldview. Like he doesn't believe the way they believe. He doesn't do tea leaves. He doesn't do whatever, you know, astrology. He doesn't do any of those things. He's 100% opposed to their worldview. But what does he do? He saves their lives. Why? Because he got the thing that's called love your enemy, that you get more mileage out of loyalty and love than vengeance in scheming. And they become these unlikely allies at a couple times. (laughs) I was reading about unlikely allies last week and this one caught my attention. It was the 1970s desegregation of schools in the South. And in Durham, North Carolina, North Carolina had made a state law. You got to desegregate and do it by making these, um, these groups that do it. So Durham was like, okay, they didn't want to do it. So they, they were trying to make it wrong, right? So the first person that was appointed this board was Ann Atwater, a black um, mom who was just into it. She's just dynamic, awesome lady. But then they also put on there, this guy, he was part of the KKK and he was called the Grand Exalted Cyclops. What a bizarre name, right? His name was Claiborne Ellis. First meeting, the Grand Exalted Cyclops came with a machine gun, right? He was setting the tone of the meeting. The second meeting, Ann Atwater pulled a knife on him, right? So it's not going friendly, So they're just at it. He's there just to make sure that this doesn't happen. He's the inside guy who's gonna deconstruct anything she tries to make. Well, they said the breaking point in this battle was a gospel choir came to the board meeting at one point and sang some songs. And the songs were so good that Claiborne Ellis, the KKK dude, started trying to clap, but white man can't clap. So Ann Atwater went over, grabbed his hands and says, here's how you clap and help them clap. And somehow in that little thing, things begin to break in him. And then he began to really see the injustice that had happened, and then to, to cancel this, whatever you do to get out the KKK. Got out of the KKK, <laughs> don't call me anymore anymore. And became a massive proponent of justice and all that kind of stuff in North Carolina. And I love that story. Unlikely allies, why? Because you have Ann Atwater loving her enemy as herself. It's like what Abraham Lincoln is supposed to have said. He didn't actually say it. It was a Pope who said it. He said, do not, I destroy my enemies by making them my friends. So Daniel continually does this. Battles for the people that he has a different worldview of. By the way, that's true tolerance. Tolerance is, hey, just anything goes. Tolerance is how I treat people that I fundamentally disagree with. And the Bible would say, you love them. And if necessary, you die for them just like Jesus did for us. And that's what Daniel's doing. Don't kill them, I don't care. They might be my enemy, don't kill them. So then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king, in haste, and said said this to them, I have found among the the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king, takes a little credit for himself here, no problem, Uh, make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. How brilliant. Remember the narrative of Daniel. According to Nebuchadnezzar, Marduk, Nebuchadnezzar's God, beat Yahweh, Daniel's God. That's his overarching theme. So a guy reading this, Book 2,000 years ago would understand that's the narrative arc. Nebuchadnezzar's god Marduk beat Daniel's god Yahweh, right? So that's always kind of in here. So what Daniel does is brilliant. Verse 27 all of Marduk's dudes can't do it. They can't do it. The astrologers, the magicians, the enchanters, the wise men, all of Marduk's crew. They're not gonna be able to do it. That's what he's saying right there. Now, do they have a power? Do astrologers and enchanters and those kind of people have power? Do witch doctors have power? Does witchcraft have power? It's a hard one, right? So I was in Vanuatu, and in Vanuatu, there's a lot of like um, witch doctors. That's what they call them witch doctors. And so the students would come in and you start having these conversations with students and man, they believe in the power of witch doctors, 100%. Like these guys have power. And they said this, they said that there was a witch doctor that could call up there called the talking namurai. A namurai is a moray eel, you know, like a snake that swims in the ocean. And when you die, if you're not a believer, you become a namurai. You go into the ocean and become this snake. So, if you want to go talk to your uncle or your aunt who had died, you go to this witch doctor that he takes you down to the ocean, calls up the talking Namurai, and they come out of the water and they'll talk to you. I'm like, how do you know it's actually your aunt or your uncle? And they said this. They said, because it has the same tattoos as your uncle. So you look at him and whatever. If he had a peace sign, the Namurai has a peace sign on him. So we happen to be in the place where this doctor was, where there was a place you'd go to the talking Namurai. So I'm like, let's go talk to him right now. They're like, oh, the doctor's not around right now. I'm like, oh, come on. So I was always like, you know, egging them on. They're like, no, witch doctors can shrink themselves into a little clay pot and only their head sticks out. Like they were, I mean, they're like, I've seen it. I'm like, let's go see it right now then. I wanna see this, let's see this, right? So I'm always like a skeptic of it. And I'm talking to Dave Corson and Dave is straight-laced Baptist. Man, he is, you know, conservative, Bible, that's it. And, and I'm asking him, what do you think about this? He goes, Matt, here's what happened to me. When I was first clearing this land, And this was 10 years before I got there. I'm clearing this. I'm thinking about doing a Bible school here. I'm just camping in a tent. I'm in the jungle. It's nasty. It's all this kind of stuff. I came out of my tent and there was a man standing on the beach. And the beach was like, you know, 20 feet from his tent. And he's like, looks out. And he's like, oh my goodness, who is that guy? So he reaches down to grab something and then goes to walk to meet the guy and he disappeared. And he's like, what in the world? Looks for him, he's gone. So the students come that day, he's like, hey, Do do any of you know this guy that looks like this? And he described the way the guy looked. And they're like, oh yeah, that's the witch doctor from the next village over. And Dave was like, they they got a power, Matt. They got a power. Beware. Daniel's a very spiritual book. And we're gonna see, especially in chapter 10, there are spiritual powers. And we would be ignorant if we ignore them. Ignorant. The Bible says this, do not be ignorant of the devil's devices. And I think the biggest one is this, make us believe he doesn't exist. That's the biggest one because then you're just ignorant, ignorant, ignorant. So yeah, there's some power, but not like God, not like Yahweh's power, right? This is the real power. So what Daniel says is this, really a theme through it is this, when it looks like God is losing, he's actually winning. He's gonna win Babylon. He's gonna win Nebuchadnezzar, which is what he actually wants. So even when it looks like God is losing, he's winning. Just think about the cross, right? It looked like God lost. Did he lose at the cross? No, he won redemption and salvation for you and for me. So verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I cannot wait to Tivo this in heaven because you know Nebuchadnezzar's jaw is on the ground. Like What? How in the world? And if you look at this image, it starts with gold, then goes to silver, and then goes to bronze, and then goes to iron, and then goes to clay and iron. It progressively gets less good. Is human government getting better and better? This image would say, "Mm -mm, it's getting less good and less good and less good. Don't be shocked by that, by the way. If government gets worse and worse, don't be shocked by it. Okay, so right now we're clay and iron. (laughs) That's what we are. And each one of these stands for something. We'll get to that. And the image, what's so interesting is this. The image that Nebuchadnezzar sees is of a man because we always make idols of ourselves. That's what we do. So he gives it, then he gives the interpretation. This was a dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters and crushes all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. (laughs) That's confidence. I nailed it. You know I did. I can tell by the look on your face, I nailed it. So in verse 37, he witnesses to King Nebuchadnezzar about Yahweh. I just am so impressed about a 15-year-old boy going in front of a king saying, hey, it's my God, it's my God. And throughout here, there's some little hints that are interesting to me. The great mountain was a known phrase in Babylon. It was the place where the God Eniel lived. And he was the God of the wind or the air. And you have a wind or air sweeping away all this stuff. I say that because God speaks in the language of the people he's talking to. Do you know that? That if Nebuchadnezzar knew about the great mountain and this God and all this stuff, God's gonna say, fine, I'll use that to speak to you right? The wise men in Jesus' day who studied the stars, how did God speak to them? Okay, you study the stars. I'm going to give you a star that's like no other star, and it's going to bring you right to my son, Jesus Christ. God speaks in the language that people understand. He does that. Um, It's a term, the the Bible is phenomenological. Do you guys know what that means? Okay, neither do I. It's just a really fancy word that makes you sound smart if you say it. No, it means this. The phenomenons that people were accustomed to, the sun rising, the sun, whatever it is, the wind blowing, that's the way that Bible speaks to people in the language that would make sense to a person in the sixth century BC or a person in the whatever, second century AD. He's gonna speak to them in their language phenomenological. He doesn't speak in science terms, although the Bible is right when it comes to science. It's always phenomenological though. The science of that day, God uses it to speak to them, right? He's not speaking in 21st century words. He's using the language and the known things of the time to speak to their people, just like he does to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so this image is of these rises and falls of kingdoms, right? Babylon, the king of gold the head, it lasts 70 years and that's it. Now, if you know 70 years, that's a fascinating time because God says to Israel, I'm gonna punish you for 70 years. How long does Babylon last? Exactly 70 years, just long enough to punish them, right? So after Babylon in 539 BC, in come the Medo-Persians. We'll look at that in chapter five. And they last till 331 BC. They're the, the chest of silver. After them comes Alexander the Great. The bronze belly sweeps in. His kingdom lasts until 168 BC when Rome takes the throne and they are iron and they are powerful and they crush people. They crush their enemies. Read the Punic Wars. It's just unbelievable what Rome was able to do, right? Phenomenal. And they last all the way to 476 AD Um, until the Astrogoths come down and wipe out Rome. But Constantinople, which it's a divided kingdom, there's two, you guys know Rome's history, right? Rome divides into two capitals, the capital of the West, Rome, and the capital of the East, Constantinople, now Istanbul, right? Those two are the two capitals. This falls 476 AD, but Constantinople lasts for another 1,000 years before it finally falls to the Turks, right? So it's it's a divided kingdom. The two legs divide out, they're the two kingdoms. So we still have to this day, a lot of Rome in us. Do you know where we get our wedding from? Right, The bride on the left and the groom on the right and the bride's family behind the bride and the groom's family behind the groom. Where do we get that from? We just make that up? No, oh, it's a Roman wedding. Like to this day, we still follow Roman stuff. Roman law, right? We follow Roman law. Right? The roads, the aqueducts, the water systems, toilets. like There's so much that still is in us. The iron of Rome is still in us to this day. It still permeates us. What do we name everything in science? Latin, where's Latin from? Rome, right? It's still in us. So you even see it to this day. Like It's a pretty amazing thing, All right? Um, verse 38 is fascinating though to me because it says this of Nebuchadnezzar. And see if you can remember, does this remind you of any other texts in the Bible? He's given you power over men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. Genesis, right? He is like an Adam. This is supposed to be given to every single person, right? Not just to Nebuchadnezzars. This was, all of us are supposed to be in the image of God, given rule over the birds of the heaven, given rule over the beasts of the field. But instead, here's what's happened. And Nebuchadnezzar is the example. Like instead of taking chaos, the chaos of whatever it is, and creating order to benefit other people, we take chaos and we use chaos to get rule for ourselves. And we don't use rule much today, do we? Like if you manage McDonald's, you don't say, hey, I'm the ruler of McDonald's. So it's a foreign term to us, but it'd be like that. It's like managing almost. It's managing resources, managing things, but we don't manage them for other people anymore. We manage them for ourselves. How do I get more for me, empire for me? And then it takes away from other people, blessing other people. And then when when you don't get what you want, you get grumpy and angry and say, kill them all. It's a cycle of empire and it's a cycle of every single person. It's a cycle that Jesus comes to heal in us, that no longer are we taking for me, 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 my empire, but instead we are saying, no, I'm a conduit of blessing to other people. I'm ruling for the benefit of others, but that's not what you see here. So verse 46, this is phenomenal. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. How crazy is that? 15 year old slave boy, you've got the most powerful man on the earth on his face in front of him. You gotta wonder what the assassins were thinking right then. What his cabinet was thinking, oh my goodness, no one, no one Instagram this, man. No photos, no, no photos here. This would be really embarrassing. All right, it's phenomenal. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God, not his God yet. Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over all the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made requests of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So what does this all mean? or to be a people that are praying to interpret Governor Kate Brown's dreams? Is that what we're supposed to do? Like, how do you actually apply this? Um, here's what it's supposed to be telling you. Number one, who's in power? We think it's the whoever, the Nebuchadnezzars or the Alexander the Greeks or the Julius Caesars or the Trumps or, no, who's in power? God is, he sets up kings and brings down kings. He's the one. So we're supposed to be, as we read this, being reminded, God's in control. Take hope in that. No matter what political party you affiliate with, God's in control ultimately. And it might seem like he's losing, he's not. He's winning, right? Number two, you see this stone that comes out, hits the image, knocks it over, and then the stone grows, right? That's the kingdom that Jesus comes to establish. It takes out Rome. So when I look at Bible prophecy, I am what's called an already not yet Bible interpreter, which means this, most prophecies have an already part to them and a not yet part to them. And I get this because Jesus does this. So if you want to, you can write down Luke chapter four, verse 18, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, verses one and two. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the good news, to set the captives free. You know that text, right? And he quotes into verse two, and he says this, to, to tell, to broadcast the acceptable year of God's favor. And then he just stops mid-sentence. Doesn't quote anymore. Because if you keep reading, it says, and the coming wrath of God. He stops because he's saying, that's not yet. I've already done this, but that other thing, that's not yet, that's coming out in the future. It's gonna be here, but just not yet. So I see that all the time in the Bible, that there's an already component. The rock has come, it's shattered the image. Now, has, has it been swept away yet? Not yet, but the wind's coming. One day it will be swept away because there's a not yet moment to it. So there's already, it's come, it's established, it's growing, but it's not yet, right? So a lot of people, I think they end up in one of those two camps and it's wrong. You gotta stay in the tension of them. So there's people that have the already kind of idea, like my church is it. My doctrine is it. Everyone else is wrong. I've arrived, I got it perfect, I'm here. I'm already, And they're very hard to be around. And then there's the not yet people like, no, no church has it. I'm out, I'm not going to any church. Well, there's no perfect church, right? Right, because we're in the tension of already it's come, it's growing, it's good, but it's not perfect yet. It's not, there's a not yet, part of it. P- people in their own faith wrestle with those t- things as well. And it's a healthy tension when you realize we're right in the middle. Some things have already happened and they're brilliant and they're beautiful, but we're not perfect yet. We haven't got there yet. That's the healthiest tension to have. Doctrinally, And I'm always moving. Why? Because I'm I have the already component, but I have the not yet component yet. I'm still learning stuff. I'm still studying. There's things that intrigue me. Man, that's the healthiest to me way to be already not yet. But the kingdom's growing. Like good things are happening right now. Has anyone seen the movie Unplanned? Show of hands. Brutal man. I, I don't know, I've just become a crier now in movies. Uh, that movie is so, so hard, Uh, brutal. But like, uh, there is a changing tide when it comes to abortion right now. And it's amazing. Like, let me just give you some statistics. Just this year alone, since January, in the states, the 50 United States, there have been 50 pro-life bills put before the individual senates and congresses of our states, 250. That's like unprecedented, right? 21, since January, 21 abortion clinics have closed their doors. Just since January. 78% of abortion clinics have closed their doors since 1990. 78%. Why? Because there's a changing environment when it comes to life. We're finding out more and more and more about life and when it starts and viability and heartbeats and all this stuff. And it's super awesome. The kingdom's come, it's growing good things are happening. It might seem like we're win- we're losing, but God's going to win. That's the big message of this, right? And then the third thing is this, third thing. How did Jesus, the rock that crushes this image, how did Jesus come in power? Was it armies? Was it kingdoms? Was it conquest? No, that's how he'll return. How'd the rock come? Yeah, suffering servant. Through loving God and loving neighbor as yourself. How does the kingdom grow? Through armies, through political power, through conquest, through whatever, through guns? No, the kingdom grows exactly the way the king brought the kingdom. Through love, kindness, service, compassion, helping, sir, that's how it just, it's gonna grow. That's the only way it grows. Every time that, that religion tries to insert itself into political power, it's always worked out poorly. It's always worked out poorly. Our kingdom, Jesus says, my kingdom's not like this. My kingdom's not like your kingdom. He said that to Pilate, the king of the land. My kingdom's not like your kingdom. I don't come with swords. I don't come that way. My people will not. We defeat evil. We, it's Romans 8, 12, Romans 12, 18 through 21. We're not overcome of evil. We overcome evil with good. That's our power. Our mightiest weapon is doing exactly what Jesus did, right? We go on on record with our faith. We expect God to do great things. And then we start acting on it like Daniel did. Hey, let's pray. Hey, let's together. Let's talk. Let's do this. Man, the kingdom grows. So Jesus today, May we learn from Daniel chapter two. May we know the already not yetness of your kingdom. May we live in that healthy, beautiful tension. Great things are happening, but we're not in your presence yet. We've learned wonderful things, but we don't know everything yet. The church is growing and vibrant and getting better, but it's not perfect. That is a healthy, beautiful tension. May we be a people that know ultimately you are on the throne. You raise up kings and you set them down. You use empires like Legos to ultimately build your kingdom, the great mountain that will encompass the entire cosmos with your glory and your goodness and your light and your power. And may we take hope in that. So fill us with your strength. Fill us with your power. May we be sent out this night with your spirit to preach the good news, to heal people from brokenness, to forgive people, to set captives free, to let them know the truth that will set them free. And may we preach the acceptable year of God's favor. That God's favor is upon us because we're his kids. So send us out, we ask. And we pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.